Jungyeon, I've been waiting for this book. I've been waiting for this book since you told me about it. It was after Shelter had come out in 16. We picked it for the Discover Great New Writers program. And I think we were having coffee or we were having lunch or something. And then you told me what the next book was about. And I have been waiting for Oh Beautiful. <laughs> I've been waiting for Oh Beautiful since before it had a title, before it had a pub date, before it had this incredible jacket. This oh, jacket I know. I love that. Bomb. I'm really happy with that. <laughs> And to me, Oh Beautiful is the, let me say, perfect companion to shelter your first novel because you're back talking about the American dream and how it can go off the rails. It's just we moved a little further west. Yep. Now we're in North Dakota. We are indeed. In the early aughts for the oil boom. Mm -hmm. So would you set up Oh Beautiful? For listeners, please. Sure. Oh, Beautiful follows a biracial Korean American journalist. Journalist. I, I'm putting this in air quotes a little bit because she's really green. She's new. And her name is Eleanor Hansen. And she used to be a model. And whenever I say that, I fear that people might get the wrong opinion or impression. You know, she wasn't a really successful model. She was just attractive enough by industry standards to appear in catalogs and make a reasonable living. But now she's in her early 40s and trying to reinvent herself because she's aged out of one career. And she's struggling at the beginning of the book to try to eke out a living. And then she gets this extraordinary opportunity thrown into her lap. Her former grad school mentor slash professor slash ex-lover offers her a chance to take an article that he was assigned that he can no longer do. And it's about the oil boom in the Bakken, the Bakken Shell Formation, which is in Western North Dakota. And Eleanor grew up very close to the Bakken, the daughter of a white former serviceman and a Korean woman who he met and married when he was stationed overseas. So the novel follows Eleanor as she goes back to a place that she knows, but doesn't know in this particular iteration. It is completely overrun, tens of thousands of newcomers, most of them men. And, you know, there she is trying to figure out what the story that she's trying to tell is. North Dakota is now second only to Texas in domestic oil production in the United States, which I did not know until I was noodling around doing the research yeah, for this conversation. Sure mm -hmm. North Dakota was also fully unprepared for the sheer numbers of people needed to work at all levels of the industry. They didn't mm -hmm. have enough housing, even though folks are being paid not insignificant salaries, certainly well above minimum wage, but also in some cases, six-figure salaries for really dirty work. I mean, yeah. hard, dirty, physical labor. Dangerous work as well. Dangerous, yeah. You've got people living in their cars, in RVs. You've got people living in shelters in the Lutheran church. And this is North Dakota that Eleanor does not know at all. Right. And Eleanor's a little... How do we describe Eleanor? <laughs> <Say> she, <laughs> she's messy. Eleanor, yes. Eleanor is, she is trying to find her way, but she's a very complicated gal. She does not have contact with her sister. The, her only surviving family member is her sister who lives in North Dakota. And she's sort of dodging her sister to a certain mm -hmm. extent. But where did Eleanor come from? And what was it like living with her while you were writing? Because this book took you about four years. It did. Uh, foreign change. Okay. Um, and she was a latecomer, actually. Okay. When I first started out the book, I had this brilliant, but absolutely not brilliant idea to write it as a novel in short stories. I wrote seven short stories before I discovered Eleanor. And all of those short stories 
were actually six out of those seven short stories were written about men, people who had moved to the Bakken in search of work, people who had grown up in the Bakken, and every single one was just a gigantic pain. It was just painful to get through it. And I would talk to my husband and I was like, I don't think this is working. But then I would like get up and still sit at my desk every day and just write through thinking that maybe it would get better. One story, two story, three story, I'm seven stories in and it feels terrible. (laughs) So finally, I write the eighth story about this woman who returns to the area to write an article about it. And it's a very early version of Eleanor. And everything just kind of opened up and became not easy, but easier than the mud that I was sort of slogging through because she has that lens piece of someone who knows the area and has a memory of it and has a memory of the things that happened to her while she lived there. But she also has a responsibility as a journalist to seek out people, people who in her daily life, she would probably like run from or not approach at all. She has to talk to everyone who comes into contact with her. She has to ask questions. She has to be curious. And that's a stretch for her because she is a person who has experienced a lot of pain at other people's hands, but has also sort of doled out a fair amount of it as well. So it puts her in one of these positions where she has to be expansive and she is not an expansive person. And yeah, she's a tough cookie. I think with both of my books, I wrote about people who I would never want to sit down and get a beer with, never want to like hang out with. But there I was every day for four and a half plus years hanging out with Eleanor and she grew on me. She really did. I had difficulty with her because there are parts of her that are are sort of my own DNA strands kind of woven in. There's a lot of reckoning that goes on in the novel. And (laughs) yeah, I've grown to appreciate her over time, but she's a complete pain in the ass. That is the best way to describe her. There were some moments with her and I appreciate her as a character because her evolution and her journey is really interesting to me. She does, and we're obviously not going to spoil the novel for folks. We're going to let them experience Eleanor for themselves, but she does have more than one moment that I as a reader knew was going to leave her changed, that her own ideas of the world are challenged, that her own ideas of the place that she holds in the world Mm -hmm. are challenged. And as much as she keeps trying to avoid certain people and certain things, she really can't. And it's fascinating watching her learn to ask questions. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Right. Yeah. She's, like I said, really green, struggling to find her way. And she has found over the course of her lifetime that it's safer, easier to not be inquisitive to not reach out to people, to not seek out people who she knows are very different from her. Um, I think it's a condition that a lot of people can probably relate to, especially as the, the sort of political landscape of our country has just become so, so much more fractured. I have a tendency to talk to other people and come in contact with other people who think like me. But when she returns to North Dakota and she's surrounded by people who have lived there for most of their lives, and then all of these newcomers who are coming from all over the place, It's this feeling of being thrown in with a whole bunch of strangers and her job is literally and figuratively to seek out these strangers, despite the discomfort, despite the feelings of encroachment (laughs) that she sometimes has. Okay, so Oh Beautiful starts as a story collection. You realize it's kind of a (laughs) non-starter. When did it start to become the novel that we're reading now? You know, I was at a writer's 
retreat, um, I was at McDowell in New Hampshire and I had arrived at McDowell with about 200 pages in the summer of 2018. And those were the pages that were the short story version. I also had hundreds of other pages before that that I'd kind of discarded. And the great thing about these writing retreats is that they give you a chance to do nothing but just think about your work. And that was a real gift to me because it was both time and peace and quiet to just think about this book and to be really honest with myself about what it was doing well and what it wasn't doing well at all. So that was kind of the turning point where I realized like I have to get rid of basically 180 pages of work that I've labored over, researched in order to write, and then start again. But I was lucky that I had Eleanor's story by the time I got to McDowell. And I was lucky that I had this really privileged month to just focus on her. And I left McDowell having written like close to 100 pages. And then, like I said, it wasn't easy at any point, but it was easier. So I quickly caught up and I think the speed at which I was writing was a sign to me internally that I finally caught on to the right thread. The women in this book are really complicated. (laughs) I mean, Eleanor's mother leaves, which Mm -hmm. at the time, given Eleanor's age and the setting of the book and whatnot, that's a radical act. Eleanor's Mm -hmm. mother leaves. Women aren't supposed to leave their children. And mom left. And Eleanor herself left her family and went to New York and ended up being a catalog model. But her sister stayed and lives on a farm with her husband and their children. Mm -hmm. And then these women that Eleanor meets, there's a section of the novel towards the end where Eleanor is interviewing women one after the other women who've moved to this community. And there's a waitress who keeps sort of eavesdropping and sort of giving her two cents, even though she doesn't want to be part of the piece, doesn't want to be interviewed, wants to keep her private thoughts private. She's Mm -hmm. one of those, one of those people who really has no problem sharing all of her opinions, but does not want to be private. Exactly. But I'm honing in on the waitress for a second because she is a character that we would recognize. She's a woman who doesn't support other women. Mm -hmm. She blames the women who are being harassed for their harassment. Yep. If you have a bad boss, just go change your boss. And of course, nothing is that simple. Right. And she's probably caught a lot of guff and doesn't even know it because she's decided that she lives a certain way. When you're spending all of this time with these women as you're writing this book, because we're talking, what, now two and a half years after you finally got the nut? Yeah. Okay. What are the questions you start asking yourself as the writer about women and how we treat ourselves and how we treat other women? Yeah, that's a really good and huge question, Mila. It was really important to me to think about the women who I talked to and I met during all those trips back and forth to the Bakken when I was visiting my family. And it was really important to me to reflect the wide range of people and experiences and individuals that I encountered. I think that what I remember most about those visits is meeting some of the best and kindest people in my entire life and some of the most closed-minded myopic people of my entire life and everyone in between. You know, I don't know if I was asking a particular question so much as thinking about the diversity of individuals and experiences and motivations that drew people to the Bakken, that drew people into the oil industry or to the related service industries and trying really hard to honor the fact that There were just so many different voices and so many different experiences. And there were examples of women who were 
so supportive, so kind, who would give you their last damn beer or, you know, the last $10 bill in their wallet. And then there were some who were just like, screw you. Like, you know, I'm just here trying to take care of myself. And there were also others like that waitress who I think were kind of feeding themselves a narrative of strength and I'm above this and I don't need this. And, you know, you're making all worse from yourself because maybe on some level that was a a form of self-protection against the crap that they were dealing with in their own lives and just wanted to sort of change the narrative in their own kind of imaginative way. So yeah, I wasn't asking myself so much questions, but really trying to think about the real women who I met during all those trips back and forth. How much time did you spend researching? I mean, the oil industry is huge. Obviously, you've been on the East Coast for a really long time. Yeah. So going back to North Dakota, how much time did all of that take? You know, I can't even peg it in years. Like my parents lived in North Dakota and only recently left the area in like 2017. So I was always going back once or twice a year to the state. We were talking about planes, you know, in the Mm -hmm. green room. The part of me that is still very much a Midwestern girl, I would always rather drive anywhere. Like give me a car, (laughs) give me some good gas mileage. um, And I will drive wherever I'm supposed to be uh, as long as I have the time to do that, which I, I don't often. Part of the treat of going back to North Dakota visiting my parents on the eastern side of the state was to drive west to the Badlands, uh, which is near the Bakken, and to just sort of spend a lot of time on these wide open roads and think and daydream and imagine. So, I mean, I was doing this like once or twice a year for a really, really long time. And a lot of it crossed over with the boom, which really started to pick up in 2008. So I was like clocking all the changes that were happening, but I had this really weird perspective of not living there, but being able to see the space and the community changing like in these six month, eight months, 12 month increments and realizing like every time I visited, like something massive and different um, had registered in in the landscape at least. Um, And also registering like the changes in traffic and how hard it was to like get a place to sit at at a restaurant or get a place to to sleep. If I put all that time together, gosh, I don't, I don't even know. I guess it would be safe to say that I've been thinking about this and researching this for as long as that first boom started and then doing a lot of work in terms of understanding oil extraction, like in the mechanics of that, which I felt like I needed to get an education on if I was going to write about people who were doing it. Well, fracking is a big part of the story, the environmental impact of the boom. I mean, there are two characters that we meet. Well, one that we meet directly, Amy Mueller, who takes Mm -hmm. Eleanor around on her farm and her husband had made some arrangements before he died. And he didn't make the best decisions because he was not educated well enough to understand miles of legalese and mineral rights versus land rights. And she lives with two wells on her property. The noise is deafening. She can't use her water. She didn't want any of this. Now, her husband thought he was doing the right thing for her because, hey, money. And then the money doesn't even turn out to be that great. Yeah. And that's a real situation that a lot of people found themselves in. You see or you quote unquote hear about your neighbors getting rich, like whatever rich means to someone, it's all relative. But there were some companies that that paid out what they said they were going to pay out for these mineral rights to explore underground. And there were some that were really good at writing contracts that confused people that sort of nickel and dimed every last thing to the point where the royalties that someone would get from a well that was producing on their land was just sort of, it was just down, down, down until it was hardly worth 
all of the time and the traffic and the labor and, and everything that people thought was worth the exchange because they were going to make some money. And keep in mind, a lot of folks who had mineral rights to lease, they were farmers or there were people who were trying to keep land that was in their family for a really long time. I think some of them get this bad rap as people who don't care about the environment, but a lot of them economically, like this was the last resort for many of them to keep a farm that was in their family for generations in the family, because it's really hard to make a good living as a farmer these days, unless you're doing it at an industrial level. And that has environmental impact as well. So Amy Mueller is one of these people who ends up with wells in her backyard and is really paying the price of a decision that as a woman, she was sort of cut out of before her husband died. And she's pissed. <laughs> she's oh, yes, really she mad. <laughs> oh, she's yes, she sleepless and stressed and really, really mad. She's not the only one who's furious mm. in this book. Yeah. But one of the other big sort of emotions that all of your characters are wrestling with, including Eleanor, and including, I think, some of the male characters who don't know that they're wrestling with this, shame is a big deal in this community. And the consequences of shame can we just talk about this for a second? Because I think more so for the women, obviously, than the men, but there's a moment where there's a fight that happens and there's a character who ends up beating up another character. And my first thought was, what's he ashamed of? Ugh. Because you describe him as fighting as if this is the last fight he's ever going to have. And he's a tiny guy mm -hmm. and he's, he lets loose during this fight. That feels more like shame than anger. I'm really glad that you picked up on that. Shame can register in so many different interesting ways, dangerous ways. I think that if you have this sort of community of people who come to a part of the country because they're trying to find their own version of the American dream, and then you end up in a community that kind of wants you, right? Because they want the local economy to succeed, but they kind of don't want you. And you're forced to live in places that aren't really meant for living, right? In, in parking lots and RV camps, it's really hard to find an apartment because people don't want to rent to this transient community, or they're just like jerking you around and charging you through the roof for a place that doesn't really hold any real value. It's hard not to feel like you've been sort of cast aside by this community that pretends to want you, but doesn't really want you through their actions and their deeds that makes no real place for you. And then complains about you because, you know, you're taking up resources and healthcare and there's all this crime now. And you may be like a law abiding member of this community of roughnecks that have come to the area, but it hardly matters because you're just sort of grouped in with everybody else. So I think that there is this element of shame and embarrassment to have to come to this place Remember, this is on the heels of, of the housing market crisis and the recession, that you have to come here, up, uproot your life, that people don't really want you here, that you're not really even living like a human being. And then to, to have to do work that is hard and dirty and dangerous, and you're just a body out in the oil patch, and you are so expendable. Because if you get hurt, there's a whole bunch of other people who are just lining up at the job bank to, to take what you've got. That's the oil community. That's a lot of men. And then with the women, <laughs> you know, Eleanor carries a whole lot of shame as a woman in her, in her 40s, who has reached a point in her life where she's thinking about how she's lived her life. 
again, she has been the object of racism and sexism and ignorance and bigotry, but she has also sort of put some of that out there on her own. And she is starting to grapple with what it means to, to be a person whose actions have consequence and what those consequences are. You know, she feels guilt at times. She feels shame at times. She feels anger. You know, it all kind of bubbles up into the surface in different ways. The real reckoning for Eleanor. And there are some other things that I'm going to skirt around because I really don't want to spoil the surprise. <laughs> but she really does not make things easier on herself. She's not the first woman in literature to not be able to ask for help. <laughs> right. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I had moments when I was reading where I was like, is she really going to be okay? I had a couple of moments where she just made spectacularly bad decisions or she was just really surprised by consequences. I'm like, you're 40 years old. It makes perfect sense in the context of the novel and what happens to Eleanor. And it was really kind of exciting, though, to see how much she grows and where we end up by the end of the story. And do we ever get to see Eleanor again or is this it? Are you done with Eleanor? <laughs> Are you kidding? Me? I, okay, I thought you might be. I thought you uh, might be. No, I'm. I, I am done, and I want to leave her again. I don't want to mm -hmm. spoil anything either. Right. I want to leave her in that place on a moment of like sort of hope that she will right. do the right thing. Right. Because I'm not sure. I don't know if she can do that. I. I. I, <laughs> I <laughs> you see how hard it was to live with her for this long, right? Uh, I'm glad you wrote the book. I'm really glad you wrote the book. I cannot imagine living with this particular character for as long as you did. But I think, too, she represents so much of what's been happening in America mm -hmm. in the last few years. There, there are moments from her personal life. There are moments from her work life. She does make progress. I mean, she has a conversation with the woman who's become her editor that I thought was really interesting. I think I had been underestimating her editor for a minute. And then they have this conversation about a person they both know. And I was like, huh, this is interesting. But I bring this up because Eleanor, in the course of this novel, Oh Beautiful, starts to change the story that she's writing. Now, she's been handed this assignment, this very fancy magazine assignment. They're picking up all of her bills for her flights and her car rental and her hotel, which is ridiculously expensive because, again, mm -hmm. this is during the boom. And she realizes that the story isn't quite what her mentor thought it was. And she starts to change the narrative. And this causes a little consternation, both for her mentor and her editor, mm -hmm. and not least of all, herself. The story that she inherits from her mentor is a story that he has sort of outlined and researched. He's even written some of the questions for the interviews that he has had lined up. But her mentor is an older, white, established, wealthy male who has been in the business for a really long time, who has you know a fancy professorship at a university, which is where they met. And the person who tells the story naturally affects the story, affects how it's seen, affects how it's told. So Eleanor inherits this entire research file, all of his work, all of his contacts. And because she feels obligated to him, because she feels like she's only there, you know, writing for this New Yorker-esque kind of magazine because of him, she tries to carry it and play it the way that he wanted it to be played. But she's a person. She has a sense of agency. She has a greater sense of connection to the area than he ever did. He's treating it like a research article, whereas she has some real connection to this land and to this community, and she knows how much it has changed. 
So she does try to seek out a different story. And she, for a period of time, gets sidetracked by a missing woman case that she talks to this female editor about. And this editor is kind of like, oh, you're interested in writing one of these dead girl stories, right? Because it seems like so many publications are interested in these stories of female suffering, right? Like if you ever look at People Magazine online, it is just nothing but (laughs) stories about the worst kinds of things that people can do to each other, particularly women and children as the victims. And it's just this trauma, one trauma after another. So Lydia, the editor, really kind of discourages this and discourages this sort of lens that Eleanor wants to tell the story from, which is that when this woman, a white woman, went missing, a lot of the anger about this case was redirected toward these oil workers, primarily those who are Black and Brown and quote-unquote outsiders to this community. Again, she gets sidetracked, but keeps kind of coming around to the same sort of story, and I won't spoil it for listeners, but eventually she does land on the story that she wants to tell. It's just not the one she set out to start with. Class, obviously, is a huge piece of this book. We skirt around it as a society because everyone's supposed to have access to the American dream, right? We work really hard. You save your family farm. You get a good job. You have a home. You have a family. What happened in North Dakota is just one example of how we've upended that idea. And yet there are still some folks who are profoundly uncomfortable with the idea that the American dream is, in fact, more of a myth (laughs) than anything else. Right, right. It's strange to me. People always want to point at themselves and say, well, I did it without thinking about who the I is and who the you is, right? And how identity changes, changes the narrative as well and changes the experience. It's interesting to me that for a period of time, North Dakota was minting more millionaires than any other state in the nation. And during you know, the worst of the recession, their job market, like they just couldn't hire enough people. There were more jobs than there were people. But lost in those stories are the ones who went out to to North Dakota and kind of lost their shirts because they ended up having so much of their salary money caught up in where they were going to live and paying rent that was completely jacked up. So this idea that the dream is so achievable for people, I'm no more sure than you are, like why people get so angry at the possibility that it's not a real thing, that people don't have equal access to it. And there is really a mythological quality to the American dream. I'm not sure what that's all about, Miwa, but I think it's part of this idea that if it doesn't exist, then we're all really screwed, right? (laughs) This is also stuff that Steinbeck was wrestling with decades ago. I mean, if you look at the shorter novels. He's really wrestling with this. This is none of this should be new ideas to anyone. And yet there is a not inconsiderable segment of Americans who really just think, oh, if I just put my nose to the grindstone, who wants to live like Amy Mueller with one of these crazy wells? I can only imagine the noise (laughs) and the smell and the water on her property is is unusable. Mm -hmm. And the traffic and the pollution and Amy is 
you know, sleepless and stressed and frazzled and can barely get like two sentences out without going into this diatribe. Like she can't even control herself by the time Eleanor actually meets her. And the funny thing about Amy is that she never wanted to get rich, right? She just wanted to stay afloat. So there's that element too. I think that there is this misconception that people who lease their mineral rights like that they were buying new houses and buying fancy cars. Like, no, they're just trying to keep their damn head above the water in this country that makes it really hard for people who work hard to keep their head above water. And then, you know, the same with the the folks who moved out to North Dakota to find a job because there weren't jobs in their communities that paid enough for them to buy a house or save their house. And maybe some of them went out there with like these get rich quick kind of schemes, but this was not quick or easy sort of labor to do for a paycheck. It really was a last resort, I think, for a lot of folks. I think it to was too. And we meet a couple of characters, one who says, well, my boyfriend and I are way too old at 30 to be making minimum wage. (laughs) So we had to come out here. And then she gets a job as a stripper and he loses his mind. And this brings us back to shame and where he thinks they're supposed to be. And he has a hair trigger temper and he's a little unpredictable, but weirdly not a bad guy. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. uh, That's Travis. And Travis also has that shame that we were talking about earlier, right? Because he has no experience in the oil industry whatsoever. And he goes out there and he starts at the very, very bottom doing what they call the ship work that higher level guys who are more skilled won't do. So he's doing stuff that's not only dirty and gross and dangerous, but there are other men around him who won't deign to do it. He is not in a place that is particularly welcoming to him. He feels nickel and dime by landlords. He feels screwed over by the people at work. And then he has his girlfriend, who he's been with for a long time, showing her body to other men. And she says that she's fine with it. And she likes dancing, but for Travis, who is already like so emasculated by so many different things, he's ready to explode in the way that I saw a lot of men sort of ready to explode because they've had so much sort of taken from them. Travis is kind of a a combination of a lot of different individuals who I met over the course of time who, like, again, I don't want to go get a beer with them either, but I understand the sources of that shame and that anger and how it sort of comes out in unexpected ways. And it's still acceptable for men to lose their tempers publicly. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Yeah. Especially like surrounded by other men, like sometimes losing their temper is like a a sign of their manhood. There are a couple of different points in the book where fights break out and people just, oh, let it be. They're just working it out. Men are men and they fight. Yeah. Yeah. And this is what happens. And Eleanor takes a step back and Even though she grew up in North Dakota, she does have an outsider's perspective that allows her to see the dynamics in this community. It just takes her a minute to figure out what she wants to do with that knowledge. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, it really does. And she's like this sort of wide-eyed observer when she arrives because the experiences that she had when she was younger growing up on a military base you know, she did feel like an outsider. She did sort of feel adrift in a community that that she never had that sense of belonging in. (laughs) When she arrives at the height of the oil boom, like she's really mystified and bewildered by how to negotiate and navigate this space. Like it is a, a very extreme, 
extreme <laughs> sense of being outside of something and also not being able to be invisible within it, which is really what she would prefer, but she can't. She's a woman, she's attractive, she's an Asian American woman, like all the ways in which a person can stand out is this inconvenience, right? Like her beauty becomes not something that is a positive as it was for at least the modeling part of her life, but it becomes this liability that doesn't allow her to blend in along with the other things, of course. Did anything surprise you while you were writing Oh Beautiful? Oh, I don't know who said this, but there is this idea that the first book is the most autobiographical. And that wasn't true for me, really. There were elements of my own background that were sort of loosely included in Shelter, but it, that book was never about me. And it wasn't about my experience. This book is, again, not autofiction, not an autobiographical novel, but it has more elements of me than I expected to include from the outset. Eleanor and I are women in our 40s who are looking back at a period of time over our lives and having some mixed feelings and some real questions, right? Like I was telling somebody recently about how my best friend and I in junior high, when we were 14 years old, like our big thing on Friday nights was to walk around her neighborhood and we would get such a thrill when men would roll down their windows and shout things at us. Like it, it somehow like that just made us feel like, I don't know, that somehow our personhood was sort of caught up in whether or not men like honked or hooted at us. Ugh, and I'm, I'm like covering my face right now as I say that because I look back and I think one, I'm a kid and I was raised in a culture that made this feel okay and good to me. So I can't and shouldn't blame myself. And then there's the part of me that thinks, boy, who the heck were these men? You know, because I looked 14. I look like a kid, but I liked it. You know, if I'm going to be really honest, I, I will say like, I, I enjoyed that attention for a period of time and leaned into it as I got older and was in my 20s. And I think about that. And I think about if there was any sort of after effect that was bigger than me, right? Hopefully not. But I don't know if I can, I don't know if, if it's that easy. So like the really uncomfortable reckoning was like with the ways in which Eleanor and I are similar, thinking about issues of complicity, that's tough. That's tough. You've been teaching at the college level for a number of years, though, and this sort of you're leading me into my next question here. We're having a lot of really hard but necessary conversations in lots of different communities right now. Mm -hmm. There are also conversations that I really wasn't quite sure we would ever get to have on the level that we're having them. But what have you learned from your students? So much. There's part of my acknowledgments that, that thanks them because I feel like by virtue of the work that I do in the classroom, out of the classroom, reading their creative writing, my students make me so incredibly hopeful for the future, that things will be better in their hands when they have a chance to lead and lead us out of this mess that we're in. I find that by virtue of being on a college campus that I get to be surrounded by people who are curious, people who want to have a conversation, people who will read the entire text before they you know, spout off like some half-cocked opinion, and people who are interested in generating knowledge and changing and opening their mind. I think I'm just like the luckiest person in the world because I get to be around people like that. And that is my job. Plus, there are also people who are interested in being creative and writing. And that's extraordinary. I don't know. I, I look around sort of broadly and 
I'm not sure if everyone is as engaged in that kind of work and labor and intellectual and artistic effort. So yeah, I feel very fortunate to be able to work with, you know, 18, 19, 20, 21 and 22 year olds, mostly who give me a sense of hope that we are getting smarter (laughs) as these generations start tacking on like other (laughs) letters, like what we're on Gen Z right now. Yeah, more hopeful than I think I have felt in a while. And again, the fact that this is my job is just like, I don't know what I did in a, in a past life to get so lucky. So we've talked about you as a writer. We've talked about you as a teacher. Who are you as a reader? This probably won't come as a shock to anyone. I am one of those people who has a, a to-be-read list that is like just stacks and stacks. Like I'm looking at them right now off in the corner of the room. I think about the books that I go back to all the time. I go back to Jam Kutzia's work all the time. I go back to Toni Morrison's work all the time. I was reading a lot of Kent Harreff while I was thinking about this particular novel because he has such a beautiful connection to place and the country. I love Jhumpa Lahiri's work. If there is a book that I could reread again for the first time, it would be The Interpreter of Maladies, that collection. Every single one was just an invitation in, in a way that I just so appreciate as a reader. The thing that I love about Jhumpa too is she writes about that hinge moment or when before tips into after. It's not always what you think it's going to be. I mean, you know this. It's a really hard thing to do well. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I do do love that story collection. I really do. What do you want readers to know about Oh Beautiful? (laughs) Oh my God, you're asking the hardest questions. I know. (laughs) I'm a bookseller. This is what we do. We think too much about these things. (laughs) I wouldn't have said this even a couple of years ago. But I would hope that it's a book that asks readers to think about themselves, to think about others, and to think about the people who they never think about, the ones who are quote unquote invisible and why they might be invisible. I think it's also, I'm almost surprised to say this, but I think it's a story about hope and how one person can change something. Yeah, I'll just leave it at that. Everyone needs a little hope. And yeah, Oh Beautiful, ultimately, it is a really hopeful novel. And as much as I dinged on Eleanor earlier, I hope she's okay. And I'm talking about a fictional character as if she's down the road from me. Jung Young, thank you so much for joining us on Port Over. The new novel is Oh Beautiful, and it's out now. Thank you so much, Mewa. Port Over is a Barnes & Noble production. The show is available on Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher. Please rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts.